Thank you. Good morning. I want to begin this morning first by saying thank you uh, to this community. I know that I wasn't able to be up here a couple weeks ago because of a, a medical emergency in my family. I also missed the first two days of the semester because of a medical emergency in another part of my family. And I know that you all have been in prayer for my family this semester, and I just want to say thank you. Uh, this has been a trying semester, but it's been one filled with grace. Our need can become a lens by which we see the grace of God more clearly. And I know that right now, we're also experiencing some wounds in our own country, and there's need there. And our prayer needs to be that not only would God's grace be seen clearly in those wounds, but that we as a church could be part of the answer to the prayer that we're praying. Uh, I deeply appreciate this community, and I'm now celebrating my seventh year here. And I'll say this, the seven-year marker at North Central for faculty is kind of a significant marker because that's the first year they let you do some things. Uh, it's the seventh year that for a certain level of faculty, you can actually apply for promotion. It's the seventh year that you're actually allowed to go on sabbatical. It's kind of NCU's way of letting you marry Rachel. You've been here for seven years, and now they're treating you as if you're really a part of the group here. Uh, I moved here seven years ago from Los Angeles, and I've spent most of my adulthood in LA. It's where I pastored, uh, it's where I taught, first started teaching college, and there was a phrase in Los Angeles I absolutely hated, uh, one that I would hear from time to time, and the phrase was this, uh, flyover states. I hear a lot of time people on the West Coast talking about having to stop over in a flyover state. Now, what is a flyover state? A flyover state is a state that you fly over on your way to the states that are important. So I'm flying from LA, that's important, to New York, that's important. I had to stop in Ohio, that's a flyover state. And from time to time, I would hear that phrase. I hated it because I'm a Kentuckian. I grew up in a flyover state, and that flyover state is paradise for me. So I didn't like that phrase, but I realized that sometimes we have the same attitude with certain passages of Scripture. How many know there are certain parts of the Bible that are flyover passages that we always fly over because we're skipping, waiting to get to the good part, right? Passages that we don't ever do in devotions. Passages you almost never hear preached in church because we don't know what to do with it. I had a professor once say in college, all scripture's inspired, but not all of it's equally inspiring. And that's exactly how we sometimes treat it. Here's what I'm going to do this morning. I'm going to preach entirely from a flyover passage. In fact, I'm going to preach from one of the most flyover passages in the New Testament. It is the first six verses of the Gospel of Matthew. Here's the thing, it is an awkward flyover passage for us because the very beginning of the New Testament is a passage that we fly over. Uh, most of us, when we celebrate Christmas, we don't go to Matthew 1.1, we go to Matthew 1.18. Now, the birth of Jesus happened this way. And it's especially awkward if you're talking to a new believer who says, I want to read the Bible, I'm going to start with Matthew, and we're like, no! Go to Mark, go to John, don't go Matthew. Now, that's kind of awkward, Right? We do this all the time. We treat it like a flyover passage. However, and of course the reason it's a flyover, is because it's a genealogy. Genealogies can be important. They can be important for us personally because they reveal who we are. There's a lot of people who love doing genealogies because it's cool when you find out what your family's like. 
I had a professor, a former professor, recently passed away, founder of Chi Alpha, who could trace his genealogy all the way back to the Roman Empire. That was cool. When we read the genealogy of Jesus here in Matthew, we learn some significant things. And I want to begin here, verse number one, chapter one. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Abinadab, Abinadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, if I was to read this whole thing through, at the very end, Matthew makes this statement. He says there are 14 generations here. 14 between Abraham and David, 14 between David and the exile, 14 from the exile to Jesus, and as if to say, if something significant happens every 14 generations, then as we get to Jesus, you should expect something significant to happen. But there's something else that's interesting about this genealogy, and it's this, unlike a lot of genealogies you read in the Bible, this one includes women. A lot of genealogies, now I will say this, All families include women. It is really hard to have a genealogy without mamas. But in the Bible, it's all men. He begat him, he begat him, he begat him, he begat him. Here, Matthew gives us the names of five women. Five women who are the mother or grandmothers of Jesus. And this is the point I want to make about the passage today. The women of the genealogy of Jesus teach us something significant about belonging to Jesus today. And here's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about the messed up family of Jesus. The messed up family of Jesus. One thing that's interesting about all of these women is all of these women in some way represent something that's messed up. Beginning with the first one, Tamar. Now, Tamar's story is told in Genesis 38, and again, it's kind of a flyover passage because it's right in the middle of the story of Joseph. Joseph is stolen into slavery, and then suddenly it goes to Judah, his brother. Chapter 38's over, and we're back to Joseph and slavery. And so many times, let's go to the story of Joseph, and we skip right over the story of Tamar. What happens in this story? She's the daughter-in-law of Judah, the older brother of Joseph. She's married to a man who's wicked. He dies. They have no children. Now, in this culture, if you don't have any kids, you can't get remarried and have another child. You belong to the family, so you would marry the brother, and the first child born to you would also have the name of the brother who died, so they're not lost from the genealogy. And you want children if you're a woman, because that's your retirement plan. Tamar is childless. She receives the brother of her husband. The brother is also wicked. He dies, and now there's one son left. And Judah is afraid to give that son to Tamar because she's the black widow who killed the first two of my sons. Here's the thing. It's not her fault, but how many know there's a lot of in-laws who can't imagine it's their child and not the one their child married? She's the problem in Judah's mind. So the third son grows up. She doesn't have anyone. She finds out that her father-in-law has gone off with his sheep, and she decides to go to the roadside. She covers herself with a veil, dresses like a prostitute. His wife has just died. He comes to her and says, how much? She says, one goat. 
He says, okay, I don't have the goat with me. She says, well, just give me the staff that you have, your ring, your cord, and that way I'll hold it as kind of a leverage, uh, kind of a down payment. He says, okay, they have sex. She got what she wanted because now she's pregnant. He goes back to give her the goat and she's gone. He says, well, let's just leave it. Let's just let it go. Three months later, he finds out his daughter-in-law's pregnant. He brings her out to be killed because she belongs to the family. She's committed adultery. Now, in the ancient world, if you commit adultery, it's not just the woman, it's also the man. So Tamar says to him, would you like to know who the father is? He owns this staff. And right then and there, Judah says, Tamar is more righteous than I am. Because here's the thing, Judah was so concerned about losing his other son, he was willing to lose all the grandchildren he could have had. Tamar was fighting for the promise of God that God gave to the father Abraham that he will have many descendants. She wouldn't let it go. Judah was willing to. She was more righteous than him. Now, how many of you would say, here is a woman who pretends to be a prostitute and gets pregnant by her father-in-law. How many of you would say, that's messed up? Say that with me. That is messed up. It is messed up. And that messed up woman becomes a grandmother of Jesus because of her faithfulness. The next woman is Rahab. Rahab's story is told in Joshua chapter 2 and Joshua chapter 6. Now, Rahab is said to have been a woman who rents a bed for the night. In the Hebrew, it's the word we commonly use for prostitute. How is she part of the story? The two Hebrew spies are hanging out in Jericho before Jericho is going to be taken over by Israel. And the question you got to ask is, if she's a prostitute, why are they hanging out in her house? Somebody say, that's messed up. What Rahab does is she hides the spies and she says to them, I believe that your God is the God of heaven and earth. And all I ask is, when you win, would you spare my family? And they put a red cord. They, she actually lets them down through a window in the wall. There's a cord there that they get let down. They said, leave the cord there and we will know who belongs to you. Rahab is an outsider, but she has more faith in God than some of the spies even did. She is one of the grandmothers of Jesus. Then the third one is Ruth, and her whole story is told in the book of Ruth. Now, Ruth is a woman just full of virtue. There's not a bad thing I could say about Ruth and her story, except for one thing. Ruth is a Moabite. And Moabites have their own history in the Bible. Moabites come from the nephew of Abraham, a man by the name of Lot, and the story is told in Genesis 19, and you got to stay with me on this. Lot, it's another flyover passage. Lot has just escaped the destruction of Sodom with his daughters. His wife didn't make it. He goes up to the hills to hide out in a cave because he's afraid now of moving to another city. And that means the daughters have no access to husbands, and they need children because, again, that's your retirement plan. So one night, they scheme, and they get their father drunk. And in his drunken stupor, they rape him. And they both get pregnant, and the first child is Moab. Somebody say, that's messed up. That is messed up. That is the family history of Ruth. And here's the thing, you would be uncomfortable if you found that out in your own history. I had a friend who actually did his genealogy, wanted to trace it as far back as he could, and he stopped when he found the same name appearing on the wrong branches because he actually realized there was inbreeding in his family. 
It was a horrible day for him. Great day for me, though. But it was a horrible, horrible day for him. All I could say is, dude, it's hilarious. Please don't let anyone know you're from Kentucky. Because he is. But here's the thing. When you're reading the story of Lot and his rapey daughters, you're actually reading the story of Jesus. Because Moab is now one of the grandfathers of Jesus. That story, that messed up story, leads to Ruth. Ruth leads to David. David leads to Jesus. You're now reading the story of Jesus. The fourth grandmother isn't even named in Matthew 1. We know her name, Bathsheba. What she's named in Matthew 1 is simply the wife of Uriah, literally her of Uriah. And the reason she's named that way, I don't believe is to disrespect her. I believe it's because Matthew wanted to bring out Uriah in the story because this may be the most messed up story of all. In this story, David is away with, he's in his kingdom, his troops are away at battle. David sees a young woman bathing from the top of his roof because, you know, he has the telescope, he's looking out at people. I don't know what's going on here, but he sees her bathing and he basically calls her to his kingdom, to his palace for a one-night stand. It is a one-night stand. It's not a love story. After it's done, he sends her right back to her house. But then it turns out she's pregnant, and here's a problem. One of the worst things you can do in the ancient world, one of the worst things you can do today is as a military commander, impregnate the wives of your soldiers. No one will ever fight for you again. And if David is found out, this will destabilize his kingdom. So what does David do? He calls for Uriah, her husband, to come back from the field. So if Uriah spends the night with her, then oh, look, they just got pregnant. But Uriah is faithful. Uriah refuses to spend the night with his wife because he says to David, I'm not going to enjoy my own bed when my men are still sleeping in the tents. Uriah is a better commander than David is. So finally, David has Uriah sent to battle with these orders, secret orders. He never reads them to the general, make sure Uriah dies in battle. This is his own man. Uriah's killed. David quickly marries Bathsheba. And now when she's pregnant, hopefully we've covered this story up. Here's the thing. Now someone say with me, that's messed up. That is totally messed up. And here's the thing that I love about this story. God confronts David. 2 Samuel chapter 12. And here's what God says to David. Some of my favorite verses in 2 Samuel. He says to him, I took you from the fields. I gave you your master's house. I gave you wives. I gave you lands. I made you shepherd over my people Israel. Had that not been enough, I would have given you more. How dare you take the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And what I love by that is Uriah isn't even called an Israelite. He is a Hittite. And in that one verse, God takes the side of the Hittite over the side of his own Messiah. Because as the anointed one of Israel, David is literally the Messiah. God chooses the Hittite over the Messiah because it doesn't matter who you are. It matters how you treat the other. And in Matthew 1... The reason Bathsheba is named as the wife of Uriah is because Uriah the Hittite now becomes a part of the genealogy of Jesus. Here's the thing. God forgives our sin, but he doesn't forget those we've sinned against. God forgets our wrong, 
but God never forgets our pain. And he also doesn't forget the pain that we've caused others. Uriah isn't just not forgotten. Uriah now finds his way into the genealogy of Jesus. The consequence of this sin will follow David for the rest of his story. The sword never leaves his house. But what's so cool is the second son born to David in Bathsheba is Solomon, another ancestor of Jesus. It's a messed up thing to happen, but it's still a part of the story of Jesus. Now, why does Matthew tell us this? Why does Matthew call out Tamar? Why does he call out Rahab? Why does he call out Ruth? Why does he call out the wife of Uriah? Why these women? He never calls out Sarah. He doesn't call out Rebecca. He doesn't call out a lot of women that I think I'd like them to be known as my grandmother. And the reason is this. Look at how the genealogy of Jesus ends, verse 16. And this... Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. This genealogy reminds us the most unusual story of all is how Jesus comes into the world. Jesus comes into the world from a father who's not really a father, a birth mother who never actually had sex, but she's already pregnant when they got married. And if you have a hard time in reading Matthew 1 and imagining that God would bring about the Messiah in this way, let's remind you of the story of Israel and all the other women God has used. Let's remind you of how often God works outside of our expectations. How often God uses people that have messed up histories, whether it be prostitution or incest, adultery or murder, women who are examples of outsiders, but outsiders who are faithful to God in a way that put insiders to shame. The inclusion of each woman as a grandmother of Jesus reminds us that God works out his plan beyond our expectations. What God uses isn't pedigree. What he uses is faithfulness. Doesn't matter whether you're an insider or outsider. What God uses is faithfulness. Now, the genealogy stops with Jesus in Matthew because that's the point. On the one hand, there's not going to be any children after Jesus, biologically. But on the other hand, the rest of the New Testament is about the spiritual descendants of Jesus. Beginning with the calling of the first disciples and continuing all the way to Revelation where we find a multitude from every tribe, nation, and tongue standing before the throne of God. Family remains a constant image of the church with God as our father and Jesus our brother because the work of Christ brings us into the household of God and this image even extends to the way that we talk to each other as fathers and mothers in the faith or more commonly as brothers or sisters in the faith. Family is such a common image in the church in the New Testament, I don't even want to call it a metaphor. We are a family. We belong to the family of Jesus, and like his biological ancestors, some of our family members are messed up. Some of us come with an undeserved reputation like Tamar, or even a deserved one like Rahab. Some of us come with a family history like Ruth. Some of us come with baggage like Bathsheba. But all these women represent outsiders who shouldn't belong but did. And there are things in our life that could be reasons why we shouldn't belong. Our background, our history... Our reputation, sometimes the reason we don't think we belong is just our invisibility. But the truth is, 
You can never allow the messed up things in your life to exercise a stronger pull on your identity than the fact that we are in Jesus Christ now. Let me give you an example here. I'm going to give you two stories and we'll close. Uh, It's a story I heard from a former pastor about a woman who lived in abusive relationship, a husband who was mean, a husband who was cruel, a husband who was so hard to live with that all of the children left home as soon as they were able. This was a man who basically lived his life in the living room in his easy chair. He had his wife always bringing the meals, and he'd complain if it wasn't right. He dominated his wife from that chair to such an extent that she wasn't even allowed to leave home. It was just her and him when he came home from work in that chair until night. When this man died, this woman was finally free of this horrible husband, but she had spent so many years under his rule that she didn't really know how to live without him, so she did what any person would have done. She had him stuffed, and she had him placed in that easy chair and covered in glass. Every day she comes in, and there's her husband stuffed in the chair covered in glass. Now, her kids were worried about her mom because this really didn't seem normal to them, and they decided to raise money and send her on a cruise to get her out of the house. So they sent her on this cruise, and while she was on the cruise, she met a man that was the exact opposite of her husband, another widower, someone, though, who had never had children but had a great marriage. He was kind. He was affirming. He was loving. She didn't know that men could be like this, and she fell in love. And she wrote to her kids and asked if it would be okay if they extended their vacation because they wanted to turn the rest of the cruise into a honeymoon, and they got married. Now, When the honeymoon was over, they decided to move back to her house because that's where the kids were. So she never told him what was inside her living room. So they come up to the door. He wants to pick her up, carry her across the door. Of course, this man is in his, you know, late 50s, so he's not that healthy like he used to be. You know, Dr. Graham knows what I'm talking about. So he comes up to this door, and he he tries to lift her up to walk across the threshold and he sees what's in the living room. And he says to her, darling, I love you, and I will always be faithful to you. There's nothing you can do that will ever make me abandon you or mistreat you. I will always be here. But that man has got to go. (laughs) And now here's the analogy. As believers, we have come many times from messed up places. There have been things in our life that have ridiculed us, that have hurt us, that have made us insecure, that have become burdens to us. And when we come to Christ Jesus, we are set free from those things, but sometimes we still don't know how to live without those things. So we stuff them. We put them in a glass case, and we keep it in our house. We treat that as part of our identity. When what our identity is is what's found in Christ Jesus, there's only one thing in the past that controls your identity, and it's what happened on a cross 2,000 years ago. Everything else you are free from. It's Christ Jesus that makes the difference. So here's what I want to say to you at the end. Don't ever, ever allow your reputation, whether deserved or undeserved, your family or personal history, your past sins or your present insecurities, ever represent to you an obstacle to God or a boundary of how far he can use you. Here's the thing. Don't ever act like your own gatekeeper. There are too many people who lock the door in front of them 
because they assume no one will open it from the other side. Don't ever lock the door when you're taking away someone's opportunity to open it for you. And never, ever act like your own gatekeeper for God. You cannot set limits on how God can use you. You can only set limits on your faith in him. A few years ago, I, was, I attend Cedar Valley Church, and this is my last story, and we're going to pray. And I really had to go to the restroom. Badly, like a couple of you in here right now. I really, really had to go. And so I did something I never do. I got up in the middle of the sermon, and I excused myself, and I went to the back of the church near the exit. And as I was coming out, I saw a student of mine, who's now a graduate, leaving. And I'd never seen her at my church before, so I called her out, and I said, hey, well, what are you doing here? I didn't know you attend this church. And she goes, oh, I don't. I'm just trying it for today. And I said to her, so why are you leaving now? And she said to me, because I've decided that God can't use me. Like, why? She said, I met the youth pastor today with some other friends from North Central, but I don't have the personality they do, and the youth pastor wanted to talk to the people with the personality and didn't talk to me at all. And she said, and I decided if I don't have the personality for ministry, then God can't use me. So I'm leaving this church, and I don't know if I'm ever going to come back to church again. And I said to her, I said, did you introduce yourself to the youth pastor? She said, no. I said, why not? And then she started to kind of get teary-eyed, and she said, you know what? She said, as I was walking out of this church, I said to God, if you want me in ministry, you need to stop me right now. And said, and then you walked out of the bathroom. So she went back. She introduced herself to the youth pastor. She went on to become the best women's volunteer we had in the youth group. And here's the thing. Some of you in here right now might be headed towards the exit of something because you don't think God can use you. You don't think it's working for you. It has been so hard in your life up to this point. You thought if it's right, it'll be easier. What you need to do is you need to turn around... You need to go to that problem, introduce yourself, and say, I'm still here. Because God is not through with you. Doesn't matter how messed up you feel. God has a purpose for you, has a plan for you, and here's the thing. Just like the women in that story, we all belong to the story of Jesus. As his spiritual descendant, I'm a part of his story. It's not that Jesus is a part of my story. I'm a part of his story. I was baptized and I identified with him in the water. When I take communion, I take his body and blood. As a church member, I'm a part of his body. One day, I will be his bride. I am a part of the story of Jesus. And when you live like you are a part of the story of Jesus, your life is going to look like it is the story of Jesus. What you have to do is remain faithful. So here's how I want to pray for you. I want to pray for anyone in here who has been telling yourself that it's not going to work for you because you're not enough. Anyone in here who feels messed up, who feels like quitting, I want to pray for you. And then I want to pray for the rest of us that we would never see someone as an outsider and treat them that way. You don't know how God can use someone. We need to be open to each other. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you that you are a God who sees us better than we see ourselves. 
You are a God who already knows our future. You are a God who already is at work in our lives. And you are a God who sees so more deeply into us and so more affirming than we can even imagine. Father, I pray for everyone here who feels messed up, everyone here who feels like their past, their history, their insecurities, that there's something in their life that is an insurmountable burden to them being used by you. God, I pray against that idea in the name of Jesus, and that right now everyone would know that they belong to you. Father, I pray for the rest of those who may be struggling with seeing people as outsiders rather than insiders, as seeing them as someone who's not as much a part of the family as they are. God, we repent of any way that we have treated people as if they don't belong. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to live like the family you call us to be. We commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're headed to prayer and fasting right now, and here's what I want to do. I want to invite anyone who wants to simply spend time in prayer to come up to pray. I'm going to be on the side here. Some other faculty, we are here to pray for you as well. Let's spend some time with the Lord.